welcome everyone. It's Pentecost Sunday. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. What a beautiful, beautiful time of worship that was. Oh, I didn't want it to end. Uh, but I am so, so excited about the word the Lord has given me to share with you this evening. I don't think I've ever had the Lord deposit a sermon in me so strongly that there's just like, I couldn't type fast enough as I was studying and preparing for this weekend and what the Lord wanted to share. But before we get to that, um, just a few announcements. Start by welcoming those of you who are listening on the radio, those of you who are watching online. I want to say hi to all the guys down at Teen Challenge. I had a great time with you guys this past week. I got to share at their conference for this entire region, and we just had a blast together. Will you join me in welcoming all of them as they tune in? Also, were there any guys here this morning for the men's breakfast? Oh my gosh, look at that. You guys are double dipping. These guys are hardcore. Let's give them a round of applause for being back at church this evening. I love the fact that you guys were here, and I really feel like the Lord showed up and and spoke to us and met with us, and that was a powerful, powerful time. And then also, I wanted to mention that this weekend, it, it, it ends this 21 days of prayer and fasting. It was a global movement that included millions of people all around the world who were all together praying for the nation of Israel. It was called the Isaiah 62 Prayer and Fast. I want to read to you just one verse from Isaiah 62. And and God says to his people, I've posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. Now, by the way, the word, I'm going to avoid the temptation to preach this whole text, but the word for watchman there, it's the, the, the Hebrew word netzrim, and it's also the word from which the word Nazarene comes from. It's the word that Jews often associate with Christians because Jesus was a Nazarene, and so when it talks about the watchman on the walls, the Jews associate that word with Christians. We are the watchmen on the walls who are praying for the nation of Israel. He says, I've posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem, and they will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Now, the organizers of this 21-day fast didn't know that it would land on Pentecost weekend, but I think that it's no, no accident and God has a plan. He wants to pour out his spirit in a special way this weekend. Praise the Lord. Amen. Um, I also had to say this. I was watching the latest, had no idea I was going to see her, but that was my daughter that was giving us the announcement. So I'm pretty proud dad at the moment. And uh, yeah, that was fun for me. My son Ben is getting ready to graduate from Maranatha Christian School next Friday as a senior. I can't believe it. We're entering into a new phase of parenthood. I'm going to have an adult, a college kid. I can't believe it. Um, and then earlier, I just, I don't know, I, I wanted to share this. My daughter, Hattie, she uh, is a third grader. And at school, they were reading poetry. And so my wife and I went to the school to listen to this poetry reading, all the kids. You know, it was kind of like that speaker's cafe. And they had the lights and the vibe and the whole thing. And, and she shared passionately her poem, which was about cheese, uh, Gouda cheese. And she was describing it and rhyming. And it was, it was beautiful. I was touched. And then she gets to the end, and her last line was, we all love different cheeses, but what we should really love is Jesus. (laughs) So I thought that was pretty funny. Anyways, um, 
And then, of course, you know, it being Memorial Day uh, on Monday, we do want to honor all of our servicemen and women. And we want to pay tribute to those, maybe parents or grandparents, loved ones who have paid the ultimate price. Amen. And so we do live in the greatest country on earth, and, and we give thanks for those of you who serve, those of you who risk your lives and um, fight to protect our freedom. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump into the word. Thank you, Lord, for this time, this gathering of the ecclesia, your church, your bride, the assembly of the ones who have been called out. And Lord, you've called us out to send us back in. So Lord, we pray that we might be encouraged and equipped so we can then be sent back out into this world to shine as bright lights, to stimulate thirst like salt, Lord, because we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. May you shine brightly through your church, Jesus. And might you minister to us this evening and pour out your Holy Spirit. We pray and ask these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The title of my sermon for you today is Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. And I'll start with a little story. So back east, they have these storms that are pretty calm and ice storms. And oftentimes, what will happen over there is the ice will accumulate on the power lines, and, and the weight will become so strong that the power lines will fall, and then homes and businesses and churches will be out of power. Well, after one such storm that swept through a particular area, a, a man came on the radio to offer the following public service announcement. He said, due to a lack of power, the following churches will be closed this Sunday. And he went on to read a list of names of those churches that wouldn't be open because they had no power. I wonder how many churches that could be said of, how many churches that might apply to today. Churches that are beautiful on the outside, and they have all the signs of life. They are active in the community. They have all kinds of programs for kids and families and all kinds of things going on. But we should never, we should never confuse activity for life. And so there are many churches that lack the power of God. And what I'm talking about in terms of churches is equally true of a lot of Christians today. Yes, they're saved. Yes, they're going to heaven. But their lives lack power. You know, Jesus talked pointedly about the engine or the power source, if you will, of the Christian life. When on that day he gathered his disciples for what would be the last time just before he ascended into heaven. And he said that they were to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. And he was speaking there of the Holy Spirit. And then he said this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And I'd love it if we could read this together out loud. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Listen, friends, the Holy Spirit is the engine that makes the Christian life possible. He is our power source to fulfill the Great Commission, to walk in victory, to live the life that God has called us to live. Without his support, without his help, Christianity is not just difficult, it's downright impossible. 
So he is our power source. In fact, the word for power there is the Greek word dunamis. And it's the same word from which we get our English words, dynamic. When you think of someone who's dynamic, they're magnetic, they're attractive. There is a power that emanates from them. It's also the word from which we derive our word dynamite. <laughs> when uh, I think it was Alfred Nobel was looking for a word to describe the power that he had harnessed with this new invention, he landed on the Greek word for power, which is dunamis, and he named his invention dynamite. It speaks of power, ability, strength, and might. We need the Holy Spirit. Somebody say amen. You see, a lot of Christians, I think they treat the Holy Spirit like he's optional equipment, an add-on, if you will. You know when you shop for a car, you'll go to the, uh, the car lot, and, and then the, the salesman will try to upsell you. And he'll try to get you to buy the leather package. Or he wants you to choose the one with four-wheel drive. Or he's trying to get you to buy the car with the fancy wheels and rims. And he's always trying to get you to spend more money from, for some additional package. And I think that there's a lot of Christians, quite honestly, that treat the Holy Spirit like that. Like he's an optional package. But make no mistake about it. The Holy Spirit is not optional. Rather, he is essential equipment, and we can't live the Christian life without him. In fact, I would go so far as to say the reason there are so many frustrated Christians out there today who are just kind of languishing in defeat is because they have yet to grasp hold of the power that Jesus made available to them through his death and resurrection on the cross when he gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. We can't, we must not live the Christian life in our own strength. Jesus never intended for us to do so. That's why he told the the disciples, don't go anywhere. Don't do anything. Tarry in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. As another example of this, because I really want to drive this point home, we, we all have smartphones today, right? Um, or most of us have these, these smartphones. And they're incredibly powerful and useful devices. I grew up in a world where there was no iPhones. A lot of us did. And I'm so thankful for that. Anybody else? Can I just go on a tangent here? I'm so glad that I grew up in a world where I wasn't a attached to the rest of the world through this device. But now that I'm an adult, I'm really thankful that I have it now. And so, you know, we don't just use our phones to make calls anymore. We use our phones to connect to the world. I can, with this device, access the total sum of the accumulated knowledge that this world has amassed over all the thousands of years of its existence. I have access to all of it right here. Thank you, Google. But not only that, I can also communicate, I can get around, I can navigate the world, I can pinpoint locations, and it'll tell me the traffic. Oh, you need, you're going to be there in seven minutes. Is that creepy? Like your phone knows, that's going to take you seven minutes to get home from where you are right now. I love my phone, but what happens if this phone gets disconnected from the power source? You see, if I don't charge my phone every night, the power goes down, and then it becomes useless right? It's good for nothing. And maybe a paperweight, something like that. Well, listen, you're like that phone. 
As long as you stay connected to the power source, you become a useful tool in the hands of Almighty God. He can work in you and flow through you to transform the world around you. But what happens when you get disconnected from the power source? You lose your ability to make a difference. You become ineffective, just like that phone. So today, what I want to do is I want to look at God's word. I want to go back to that first Pentecost to see how we can, as New Testament Christians, tap in to the power of the Holy Spirit that God has made available to us. You ready for it? Okay. I'm going to run with the three of you who said yes. Let's do this. Verse 1 of Acts 2 says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, everybody say suddenly. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 1 describes these events that happened on the day of Pentecost. Now, we have to talk for a minute about Pentecost. It's one of seven annual feasts that are celebrated in Israel throughout the year. There are four feasts that are kind of clumped together and occur in the spring months. And then there are subsequently three feasts that get celebrated in the fall. And, and most of them wrap around the harvest season. The first four take place in the spring. The other three take place in the fall. And Pentecost is the last of the spring feasts. It celebrates the early harvest. Now, what's interesting for us as believers is when you begin to dig into these feasts, you'll find that each one points to the person of Jesus in a very powerful and very specific way. Let me show you quickly. Jesus was crucified on the day of Passover. Did you know that? Not the day before, not the day after. He was crucified on Passover. Passover points to Jesus and his death on the cross. He was then buried on the second feast, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jesus was buried on the day of unleavened bread. He then rose from the dead on the third feast, which is the Feast of First Fruits. He is the first fruits of those who will rise from the dead. Praise the Lord. And so Jesus rises from the dead on the day of the third feast, the, the Feast of First Fruits. Now, after that feast, there's a, a gap of 50 days. In fact, that's where the word Pentecost means. It means 50. And 50 days later, you have the Feast of Pentecost. Now, it's significant that here we're reading about the Holy Spirit being poured out and the birth of the church occurring on the day of Pentecost. It all happened specifically and exactingly on the days of the feast. And when we get to the next feast, it's the Feast of Trumpets. We'll celebrate it this fall. Uh, and and you got to come to our Feast of Trumpets if you haven't been. Um, it is a party like no other. And it anticipates the return of Jesus Christ. But on this Pentecost, something significant happens. And I want you to note with me the conditions that were present that day, because I think they facilitated an environment that was conducive to the outpouring of God's spirit. Here's what we're told by Dr. Luke. He says they were all together 
in one place. If you're reading out of the old King James Version, it says they were in one accord and in one place. They were gathered in this place. Now, what is this place where they were gathered? Well, if you go back to chapter 1, we learned that it was the upper room. That's where they were gathered. This is the same upper room, mind you, where they had spent the Last Supper with Jesus. Those events that we're reading through in John's Gospel, 13, chapter 13, 14, 15. All of that happens in the upper room. It was a very significant, very special place. And it's where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. It's, it's where he instituted communion. And, and it's where he shared with them about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That was one of the topics that Jesus discussed with his disciples on that evening. And so now the disciples have gathered together in the upper room. And what are they doing? They're waiting. Jesus said, Terry, don't go out, but wait. And they're there for 10 days, a, a prayer meeting that lasts 10 days. So if the question is, where and when does God pour out his spirit, then here's the answer. He moves where he finds believers gathered in one accord, in one place, praying with one heart. That combination of factors creates an environment that the Holy Spirit finds irresistible, where you have a group, a gathering of Christians, they have one heart. One mind, one spirit, one accord, one place. What are we doing? We're waiting on the presence. We're here to welcome the presence. Lord, we're here for you. We need your spirit. We need your power. Come flow. Come fall. Come pour yourself out on us. That is the place where God's spirit moves. And would to God we would become a church that mimics those characteristics of the early church. This, this idea of oneness, of unity, it's something that God blesses. In fact, uh, Psalm 133, it's a powerful psalm. Let's read it together. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I feel like I'm reading alone here. Can you help me out? It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Where God sees believers gathered together in unity, he says it's like the oil, the oil of the spirit. Oil is another type of the spirit. Running down the beard of the high priest, Aaron, pooling at his feet. God commands a blessing in the place where there are believers gathered with one heart and one mind. And that blessing is life. Life spills out. Life overflows in the place where believers come together in unity. Oh, Lord, would you give us that kind of experience here tonight? As they're gathered there in one place, one mind, one heart, praying, suddenly, suddenly, there's a sound like a mighty rushing wind. You know, the Bible is filled with various suddenly events. Life can be moving along normally, and then out of nowhere, God breaks in, and a suddenly event occurs. And that's what happened here. After 10 days of prayer, after 10 days of nothing, after 10 days of ministering to the Lord, suddenly the Lord shows up. Now, the Greek word translated suddenly there means without warning or unforeseen. 
It was used to describe a lightning bolt. And that's what this event was. It was like an explosion of power from heaven. And it swept through the room like a mighty rushing wind. We ought to talk about the mighty rushing wind. You know, oftentimes in scripture, the spirit of God is likened unto wind. I just talked about the picture of of the spirit being uh, symbolized in oil, but it's also pictured in the wind. In fact, the word for spirit in Hebrew is ruach, and that same word can be translated as wind, breath, and spirit. All the same word. The wind of God, the spirit of God. But this is a particular type of wind here, isn't it? You know, a gentle breeze. It's a beautiful thing. You ever you know, fall asleep to the sound of just the wind kind of rustling gently through the trees? It's just maybe you have a window that's cracked, and you get that sound like, you know, oh, it's glorious. I love those kinds of afternoons. But that's not what's being described here. What we have here is not a gentle breeze, but a violent wind. When I used to live in Colorado, we would, from time to time, get tornado warnings. Here we get earthquakes. There they got tornadoes. And, and, and when those storms would come through, the wind, it made a different noise. Some of you who lived in the Midwest, you know what I'm talking about. And this wind was so fierce and so intense, there were times when you felt like it might just rip the roof right off the house. And that's the kind of wind that blew through the house of God as the spirit came down. You know, the the spirit, like the wind, Jesus talked about that, didn't he? In his conversation with Nicodemus, he he referenced the the wind being like the experience of being born born again. He said, you should not be surprised at my saying that you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. The spirit is like the wind, and the wind wants to blow through the caverns of your heart tonight. Just as you can't see the wind, the wind is invisible, right? But what can you see? You can discern the movements of the wind by the effects that it produces in the natural world. You can't see the wind, but you see the trees, you see the leaves, you feel the wind on your face, and God says, that's what it's like with the Spirit. When the Spirit of God moves in a person's life, you might not see the Spirit on them, but you better believe you're going to feel the impact, the weight of that wind. And so what our job is as Christians, listen, don't miss this. Our job as believers, as a church, is to discern the movement, the blowing of the wind. And then we want to capture it. We want to harness it. Think of a, a sailing vessel. They're not creating the wind, but they are propelling themselves through the water by capturing the wind and allowing it to fill their sails. Are the, are the sails of your life filled with the wind of the Spirit tonight? Because the wind is always blowing. God is on the move. And our job is to, to discern, excuse me, where are you moving, God? Where is your Spirit blowing? And we just try to get on board and get behind whatever he's doing and wherever he's moving. So that's the first supernatural phenomenon. There is a wind that blows, and it it creates a sound. But the second supernatural phenomenon that occurred on Pentecost Sunday is tongues of fire. 
Can you imagine that? Tongues of fire descending from heaven and landing on the disciples' heads. You know, throughout the Bible, God often uses fire to symbolize his manifest presence. And I'm thinking of one example in particular. Do you remember the story? It's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 3, where God is commissioning, he's calling a man by the name of Moses, and he does so in a peculiar way. He appears in the form of a burning bush. Do you remember that? And Moses looks, and he sees this bush that's burning, which isn't really that spectacular. It's not that unusual. But something about this fire was different, because the bush was on fire, but the bush wasn't being consumed. And Moses turns aside, and then he realizes, I'm in the presence of God, as God speaks to him from the bush. And he says, take off your sandals, because the ground on which you're standing is holy. I love what my dad used to say. God told Moses to take his sandals off, because he didn't want any anything standing between him and the holiness of his presence. I don't even want shoe leather to come between me and you, Moses. So just get rid of the sandals and fall to your knees and be and dwell in my presence. Now, the thing that that struck Moses was the idea that this fire wasn't consuming the bush. Well, consider now we have a mirror of that example happening again on Pentecost Sunday. The experience of the disciples in the upper room is not unlike the experience Moses had with one notable difference. Instead of the fire burning in a bush, this time the fire is multiplied dozens of times over. And it's not burning a bush, it's landing on them, each one of them becoming like another burning bush. They're all on fire, and yet they're not being consumed. And it draws a crowd. You know, a long time ago, was a a famous evangelist by the name of John Wesley. He's the founder of the Methodist movement. If you've ever heard of Methodist churches, Methodism, he was the guy who started that whole movement. And he he was lived in the 1700s. He was a famous preacher. And he was so anointed, so dynamic, that when he would show up in a town to preach, word would spread. And the churches would become so overrun with people that they had to move outside to hold the services. Kind of cool, huh? And so they would hold the services in whatever, you know, Farmer John's Meadow or something like that. And and thousands of people would come from hundreds of miles away to hear John Wesley preach. On one occasion, while he was preaching in a meadow, there was some guy who apparently didn't like him or his message. And, And so he took a bull and released the bull in the meadow. Can you imagine that? He writes about it in his journal. Can you imagine you're sitting there taken in church and there comes a bull charging at you, just... That would definitely throw a, a, a wrench in your, your sermon. <laughs> Talk about persevering in preaching. But he went on. He finished the sermon. People got saved. Praise the Lord. On another occasion, there was a journalist in the area who interviewed Mr. Wesley. And uh, he, he said to him, what's your secret? Why do so many people come out to hear you preach? Like, what's the secret sauce? And I love John Wesley's response. He said, I go into my prayer closet, and I get alone with God. He sets me on fire, and the people come just to watch me burn. Oh, come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. That's good. That's good. Let me ask you a question this evening. How's your fire? How's your fire? Are you burning passionately? I want people to watch me burn. 
And I know that's your heart, too. You know, in Leviticus 6, God gives specific instructions to the Levitical priests concerning the fire that rested on the brazen altar where offerings and sacrifices were made to God. And he said this. He said, don't ever let the fire go out. Make sure you're adding fresh fuel to the fire every morning and every evening. Make sure there is plenty of wood to fuel the fire in your heart so that the fire never goes out. And perhaps you're here this evening and you would say, my fire has waned. And, and, and there are seasons where our, my fire burned with a white, hot, fervent heat. But now it's more like embers. And God wants to stir up the fire in your heart tonight. The Spirit of God is going to fall on you and the the fire of God is going to come. Praise the Lord. Amen. The third amazing thing that happened on Pentecost Sunday is they all began to speak in unknown languages. And we see that in verse 4. When they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Now, the Bible speaks of the gift of tongues, and there are different kinds of tongues. There is the tongues of men. That's different languages, glossialias, right? And then there's the, the language of heaven, the language of angels. And one of the manifestations of God's spirit, in particular, the one we read about here is these disciples all begin to proclaim in these dialects that they had never studied, they'd never learned, they begin to proclaim the wonderful works of God in all of these languages. Now, why would God do that? Well, there were people who had gathered and converged on the ancient city of Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And Luke, who is the author of Acts, he goes on to describe how there were Jews who had converged on Jerusalem from 17 different dialects, different countries, and they're all there to celebrate the feast. And so God says, boom, I'm just going to anoint you and gift you and equip you to witness to all these people who have just conveniently converged on the city so when they go back, they can take the gospel with them. And they begin to speak and share, and God moves. Now, sometimes when the Holy Spirit gets poured out, this manifestation of the Spirit reveals itself, but it's not the only sign that a person is filled with God's Spirit. There are plenty of others, but this is what the Lord does on this day. Now, I want you to note the response. When they suddenly heard the disciples speaking in their native tongue, verse 6 says they were in bewilderment. Verse 7 goes on to say that they were utterly amazed. Verse 12, if you'll jump down there, says they were amazed and perplexed. And in verse 13, it says that some of them made fun of them. <laughs> so here's the responses. People are amazed. They're bewildered. They're perplexed. And some people make fun. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like a perfect description of a move of God. <laughs> Wherever the Spirit of God shows up, and whenever the Spirit of God is being poured out, there will always be an accompaniment of supernatural phenomena, things that can only be explained by God. There will be amazement, there will be bewilderment, and there will always be some criticism. Now, the reason these people criticized what was going on is because they didn't understand it. So they said, ah, they're just drunk. 
And revival, you know, it's, it's one of those curious things because it only makes sense when you're walking in it and when you're experiencing it and when you're caught up in, in it. To those on the outside, a revival looks like a hot mess. It seems foolish. I like this analogy. Someone once likened revival to a geode. You know those rocks, those geodes that are ugly on the outside, but you break them open, and they're beautiful on the inside. And you got to be inside of it to reveal the beauty of it. And so often with the move of God, that's, that's the way it works. Remember David, when he was returning the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem? And so David, he goes before the Ark, and the Bible says that he dressed himself in a linen ephod, which is essentially his, an undergarment. So he's walking, dancing in front of the Ark in his undies, and he's praising the Lord. And his wife is looking down on him from the window of their high-rise apartment building, and she says to David, didn't the king look distinguished today? She's like, how could you belittle yourself? To, to act like a fool in front of the people like that. And David answered her on that occasion, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from this house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. I was dancing for the Lord, dancing for an audience of one, and I will celebrate before the Lord. And guess what? I'm going to become even more undignified than this. I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. She criticized what she couldn't understand because she refused to enter in. And there will always be those who stand on the outside and say, this is ridiculous. God's not here. God's not moving. Oh, except for those people who are experiencing the power, experiencing the presence. It's a whole other thing. Now, when you go and you look at Michael's story, that was her name, David's wife. It says right after that that she was barren for the rest of her life, Didn't, wasn't unable to have kids. And so and to us, that speaks of a lack of fruitfulness, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. There was a frustration. There was, there was, there was a lack of, of rest. There was a barrenness that character, characterized her for the rest of her life. Why? Because she chose to stand at a distance and criticize rather than enter in. Now, in verse 13, when it says that they've had too much wine, Peter stands up in verse 14. And he raised his voice, and he addressed the crowd, and he said, fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. I mean, it's only 9 in the morning. What is he saying? The bars aren't open yet, guys. We couldn't possibly be drunk. No, this is what was spoken by pro the prophet Joel, how in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Let's talk for a minute about what it means to come under the influence. And I want to draw a contrast between their criticism and the experience of the disciples. Because as odd as it may sound, I do think that there are some similarities that we can draw from an alcoholic and a spirit-filled Christian. It's an interesting comparison. And there are notable differences, obviously, that we could draw out. 
But there are also some comparisons, some, some similarities that are worth mentioning. Paul drew on the same analogy in his letter to the Ephesians when he said in Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And so he holds these two things side by side. How might they be similar? Well, think about it like this. Both the Spirit-filled Christian and the person who goes to the bottle, are both wanting the same thing. They're wanting to be inebriated. They're wanting to come under the influence of an outside force. And both people like the experience of becoming another person. You know, when you drink alcohol, you're not the same person you were prior to drinking alcohol. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And and some people like that. You know, they're like, I don't know, I just, I want to talk to her, but I feel like I need a little liquid courage. You know what I mean? And and it's like, you like who you become when you're drunk. And the same thing happens to the person who's filled with God's spirit. You become a different person. You do things and make decisions you wouldn't normally make were you not filled with the spirit of God. You're under the influence of a power that changes who you are. Consider, too, the influence on your mind. There have been scores of studies that talk about how alcohol will alter the chemistry of a person's mind and their thinking. That's why you're not allowed to drink and drive. It can make you think you're having fun even when you're hurting yourself. It can make you think that you're really suave and cool even when you're acting like a complete fool and making a a, a fool of yourself. Even after you sober up, your memory is twisted if you remember anything at all. In the same way, when you come under the influence of the Spirit, it impacts your thinking. You begin to think on a higher plane. Instead of clouding your mind or distorting your thinking like alcohol does, the Spirit clears your head and sharpens your mind. He opens your mind to the deep things of God. He brings understanding to the scriptures so that you know the will of God, the heart of God, and the plan of God, that you have insight into what other people's needs are, and you can address those needs. It's like you, God will give you words of knowledge, and you can look at someone, and you can pray for them and, and have insight into their life that you would no way, no, have no may, uh, way of knowing outside of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There's one more similarity that should be mentioned. In order for the effects of alcohol to have their impact on you, you've got to consume the liquid, right? I mean, if you just read the label or read the ingredients on a bottle, alcohol is not going to have any effect on you. Well, the same thing is true with the Holy Spirit. If you just read about the Holy Spirit, talk about the Holy Spirit, learn about the Holy Spirit. It's not going to do you one lick of good. You've got to allow the Holy Spirit to fill you. You've got to come under his authority. You've got to submit to his influence. And so as we wrap up tonight, can I just talk to you for one more minute about this idea? Let's invite the Holy Spirit to come. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. This is your church. We're your bride. We're your people. We surrender ourselves. Amen. You know, there's this curious story in Acts chapter 19 where Paul the Apostle goes to this city called Ephesus, a place where there was a church of believers. And he begins to gather with the believers there in Ephesus. But he notices something peculiar. He notices that something's missing. And so he asks the the, the Christians there, he says, have you been filled with the Holy Spirit yet? Which is an interesting question. What was it 
about that church that led him to ask that question? Well, knowing what we know about the ministry of the Spirit and what the Spirit produces and what the Spirit affects in a person's life, how the Spirit brings power, how the Spirit releases understanding, how the Spirit overflows in love. Maybe there was a lack of power in the church. Maybe there was a lack of love, lack of patience, a lack of joy. For whatever reason, Paul discerned that something is missing with this group of believers. And so he said, have you received the Holy Spirit? And their response is so telling. They said, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. He said, well, what, what baptism were you baptized into? And they said, the baptism of John. And so he explained to them the ministry of the Spirit. And he prayed for them. And he laid hands on them. And the Holy Spirit fell. And don't you know, God wrought a mighty revival in the, in the city of Ephesus after the Spirit of God fell. Can I ask you the same question here tonight, church? Is there something missing in your life? Are you lacking power? Are you walking in victory? Are you living with love? Are you overflowing with joy? Are you experiencing the peace of God? If the answer is no, then it could be that you need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. You see, the command is to be ye being filled. That makes for bad English, but it makes for wonderful theology. You need to be filled regularly. Why? Well, the best reason I can come up with is I think I'd leak. <laughs> and so we need to be filled over and over and over again. And for far too long, the ministry of the Spirit has been ignored, downplayed, and downright rejected in the modern church. Instead of relying on the Spirit, many churches have turned to their own clever strategies, fancy programs, innovative services, clever or compelling sermons in hopes that that will change the world. And what a poor substitute they are. We've replaced programs for his power, business for his blessing, activity for absolute dependence, and religion for a vital living relationship with him. And then we sit around and we wonder why our experience of the power of God isn't the same. And we don't see the same miracles. And we don't see the same kinds of things that they saw in the book of Acts. We need to get back to a dependence on the Holy Spirit. Amen. A.W. Tozer, who's one of my favorite authors, he once leveled this stinging indictment against the church. And perhaps you've heard this quote. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what they do would go on, and no one would know the difference. If the same Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop, and everybody would know the difference. Listen, Jesus never intended for you to live this life in your own strength. How long have you been running on the fumes of yesterday's filling? You need a fresh outpouring of his Holy Spirit. When the Spirit comes on you, you'll have fresh power to fulfill God's will, defeat the enemy, and expand the kingdom of God here on earth. No matter what you're facing, no matter what circumstances are in front of you, no matter what the need is today, the answer is the same. We need the Holy Spirit. So will you pray with me? You want to know the one prerequisite for experiencing the outpouring of the Spirit? It's so simple. You just have to ask. Jesus talked about a father whose son asks him for bread. He says he's not going to throw a scorpion at him. 
If his kid asks for fish, he's not going to tuna sandwich. He's not going to throw a rock in his face. And then Jesus used that simple little story to illustrate a divine truth. He said, how much more? How much more? How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Those who ask receive. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, the door is opened. Friends, we don't have to climb some mountain. We don't have to cross. An ocean. We don't have to erect some huge monument. We don't, I mean, we don't have to jump through hoops. The Holy Spirit is here. The same Spirit that moved powerfully in the sound of the mighty rushing wind. The same Spirit that fell in the form of fire on the heads of the disciples. Our prayer today is for fresh wind, fresh fire. I want to give you an invitation. Those of you who want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and by the way, I don't want to coerce, I don't want to manipulate, I do want to encourage and exhort, so this is hard for me. But I don't want anyone to do this who's not serious. So so just go into your own heart and to discern. So is this something I want? For those of you who want the Holy Spirit to fall on you, just stand up wherever you are. Just go ahead and stand to your feet. If you want to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. church. We don't want to do churchianity. We're tired of it, Lord. We want, we need. We're desperate for the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is like water, one of the attributes of water is that water tends to pool in the depressed places, in the low places. As you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, his spirit like water will flow into you. You recognize your need. You recognize your lack. You go low, and he'll be lifted high. Okay, I'm going to lead you guys in a prayer. I praise the Lord that you're standing. You've already expressed your desire for God's spirit to flood you. Now let me invite you to Put your hands out like this, palms facing up. And I do this because oftentimes when we reflect on the outside, what we're asking God to do on the inside, it has a way of affirming or cementing that experience. See, first it happens in the natural, then in the spiritual. And so we're assuming a posture of receptivity. 
And here's the prayer. Go ahead and pray this with me. Just mean it from the bottom of your heart. Say, dear Jesus, you promised to send the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Well, I'm asking. Send a fresh wind. Send a fresh fire. Fill me. Flow through me. Consume me. And use me for your glory. In Jesus' name. I don't feel different. Wait, wait, wait. This is an exercise in faith. By faith, you prayed, and you respond in faith to the promise. The promise is you ask, you receive. So the Holy Spirit is already given. And the issue is not, I need more of the Holy Spirit, because you already have all of God. You can't have more than all of him. You have as much of the Holy Spirit as you want. The issue is not you need more of the Holy Spirit. The issue is the Holy Spirit needs more of you. And so the more you surrender, the more of your heart you, the more territory you give to him, the more he'll take control. And the more of you he has, the more he'll flow through you, the more of his power you'll begin to walk in and experience. And I promise you, you'll never be the same. You're going to open the word, and it's going to make sense. You'll have a desire for things of God. In your conversations, as you, as you lean into the Spirit of God and you say, God, I believe you're going to speak to me in my prayer time, you'll hear something. It's a still, small voice. And you'll lean into that. You write it down. And then later on in the day, you're going to say, wow, Lord, you spoke to me through your word about this. And here I am using what you gave me. That's how it works. It's really practical. It's natural. And yet at the same time, it is. And it's supernatural. Amen. It is otherworldly. And you are now filled with the Spirit of God. So we're going to worship. We're going to worship in spirit, and we're going to worship in truth. And the Holy Spirit's going to continue to pour himself out. So let's praise. Let's worship. Let's invite the Holy Spirit. Let's be the church. We're in one accord. We're in one place. We have one heart. Our prayer is one. We want God the Father. We want God the Son. We want God the Holy Spirit to show up in this house, to move in this place, 